This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. And uh, thanks for listening. Quick reminder before we jump into today's episode, this is your last week to register to attend our very first in-person panel that we are hosting at the Institute of Contemporary Art San Francisco. So if you're going to be in San Francisco Thursday, March 17th from 6.30 to 8 p.m., please come attend this event. It's free. Seats, however, are limited, so please register if you plan on attending. The Eventbrite link is in our show notes. And if you subscribe to our email, it should be in there. If you follow us on social media, the link will be there too. You can also go on ICASF's website and find the link there. This is also your last week to enter to win a free membership to Art World Learning. All you have to do is submit a podcast rating and review and send us a screenshot of your review to beyondthestudiopodcast at gmail.com. We will need your email in order to give you the membership and ratings sometimes take a little time to show up and they don't always show us all of the reviews. So this way yours can be counted in the giveaway. Um, So the deadline for that is also March 17th. So that's going to be a real big day for us. So feel free to send us some love. And now for today's show. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio podcast, we are excited to be speaking with a Bay Area-based artist, Kiana Hunarmand. Kiana is an artist born and raised in Iran. Her work addresses issues related to her cultural identity, violation of women's rights in Iran, censorship, surveillance, and the Western perception of her Swana identity. Derived from her interest in different materials and processes, Kiana's interdisciplinary practice features the use of digital fabrication tools as well as traditional methods of craft. In 2012, Kiana moved to the United States to pursue and complete her Master of Fine Arts degree. She currently lives and works in the Bay Area, and her work's been exhibited in solo and group exhibitions throughout the United States and internationally. And we were actually first introduced to Kiana's work through our listener spotlight. Um, So we featured her on our social media a couple of months back, and we're just really drawn to her work and her story and are really excited to uh, get to dive into all of that further on the podcast today. 
And so I'm also just going to use this as a plug for our listener spotlight. Um, if you're interested in sharing your work at Insights or in uh, being a guest on the podcast, um, that's the, the best way to pitch your work. So uh, we really encourage you all to submit um, and we'll include the link to that in our in our show notes. But um, Kiana, thanks for uh, joining us and uh, we're excited to talk with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be here on your podcast, which is amazing, and also be able to uh, talk to you as the podcast host and also as artists. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the questions we like to ask just to um, kind of start us out is if you might be able to tell us a little bit about some of your earliest experiences with creativity. Um, like, did you always know that you wanted to pursue art or at what point did you decide that this might be something that you wanted to, um, pursue as a career path? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, so actually when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of art around me. I don't know any artists and, uh, where I grew up, it was, you know, the focus was really on sciences. And uh, for us, the way it worked in high school, for instance, we kind of had to pick a major. It would be either like in the math or for engineering or be like in sciences with, uh, for, you know, you know, if you're going to be, for instance, like a physician. Uh, so we had to pick these kind of uh, concentrations early on. And I, you know, naturally was these two options. Um, and the arts and humanities weren't really like that popular or considered that great. So for me, like I've, I had no exposure to art growing up other than like listening to music pretty much, but no visual arts. And then right before going to college, I actually kind of became really interested in, in studying music. And uh, that's how I started. Uh, I, you know, I, I did, uh, we have entrance exams to go to college and then I tried to go in for music and I started there, but then it ended up being not what I really wanted and I switched to photography. But, so I technically started art in college. Before that, I had no exposure to art. I, just, I knew I was interested in music. I knew I was interested in photography, but I had no idea what that career would look like or what to expect. Mm-hmm. And were you musically inclined as a kid? Like, were you playing instruments or singing or what kind of um, music were you wanting to pursue initially? Um, well, when I was young, my dad was taking some classes and I would sometimes go and like play with his instruments. And I, you know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but other than that, I didn't start playing music until maybe it was like 16 or 15. I started with the violin and then... I switched to like a Persian traditional instrument, which is called kamanche. Um, and that's when I, you know, I went to college to also kind of concentrate on that. But uh, really, again, like it's uh, growing up in Iran, it's like a weird, uh, at least like when I was growing up, things have changed a lot, but we kind of live under uh, an Islamic regime, so like music not was not necessarily encouraged that much. We all listen to music, but it's all like all underground and hush hush. And um, now I think things have changed a lot since then. 
uh, still not completely like women can sing, for instance, in Iran, uh, still to this date. Uh, but uh, yeah, so there were just in general a lot of uh, limitations. So it's not like I could just go and take a class to sing, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like your family was somewhat musical, though. Were your interests in art and music generally encouraged? Or was this something that you really had to kind of advocate for, given the circumstances? And, um, you know, I'm curious your decision to to change your major, to pursue photography, or even to, to you know, apply to school for music. Was that considered kind of controversial, uh, or did you find that you had a community of support for you? Um, in my immediate family, like my parents were very supportive from the beginning. They were they encouraged me to do or pursue what I was really interested in, uh, and especially my father is really interested in. In, in music. He was very upset when I actually switched from music to photography. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, he, you know, they were supportive, but just uh, everybody else was pretty much like, no, you don't, you don't do that. You don't switch from like math to art all of a sudden. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge, but luckily my immediate family was very supportive. And uh, and, you know, for me, the decision was for, you know, before going to college, that's when I really started to think about the future, what I wanted to do. And I just knew that what I was doing and studying at the time wasn't something that I really saw myself doing as a career. Uh, and I knew that there was something in art that really interested in, I was interested in and I even though I didn't know much about it. I mean, I ha- we had like some art classes in school and my mom was really into like crafts. Uh, so every time that I had exposure to those things, I enjoyed it a lot. And really that's what pushed me to go and explore to see what that lo- could look like in the future if I decided to be an artist. And what was your experience like uh, studying photography in Iran? So I, ac- I really enjoyed taking like all the different classes there was a huge difference between um my uh, my, like my experience in uh, undergrad in iran and grad school here for us uh, everything was very at least in my school everything was very technical uh so we had we were pretty much as a class of about like 20 people we were introduced to like Okay, certain like basic things like whatever introduction to drawing or just things like that. And after that, we had all photography classes and some history classes. But we basically had, we're taking all of these classes together. We had a set schedule, like a set program that we had to follow. So we didn't, they didn't, didn't leave a lot of room for experimentation with different media. So I didn't have any exposure to really like to painting or sculpture or anything like that. The departments were very, were very separated in that way. But I, I loved my experience of learning photography. It was, it was so great to be able to do a, a lot with everything from like the dark room, uh, just we spend days and hour, like each day hours in the dark room and then learning about all of these different aspects of photography. And it was really fun. There were like, again, some like major differences like here for instance and when i went to grad school uh in at penn state there was 
a big emphasis on, for instance, like critique, but for but that wasn't really big for us. It was a, a lot about just different techniques of uh, how to make and how to basically hone your craft. What was it like with that experience going from undergrad to grad school and having it be so different in how the, I guess, in how the, the classes were, how the, the critiques were, the way, the, I guess, the approach to the practice? Yeah, that's a great question. I When I went to graduate school, I think uh, I was really, like, shocked uh, how much people were, you know, really had to talk about their work. And I wasn't necessarily, like, trained that well into being able to talk about my work and participate in critiques. But uh, I thought that was really helpful to to have all of these resources. And then uh, the graduate school that I went to actually was a very interdisciplinary program. So one of the requirements was um, you have to take certain number of credits in different, uh, basically different areas. Uh, and I started taking classes in like printmaking, sculpture, and like ceramic. And I fell in love with like all of these different things. And that actually completely changed my um, studio practice and process of making. And for, like before that, every time I wanted to talk about something, I would just think about, okay, this is the concept that I'm working on. How do I, like what pictures do I take? And then it kind of became, okay, this is the concept. What's the best way? to tell that story or talk about it. What's the, maybe what's the best material? What's the best media? And that's really, really changed the way I make work. And I started with, I became really interested in installation. And I started making, um, like the first installation that I did was really with photography and projection. But then I started working in uh, mixed media and sculpture and then bigger sculptures and installation work and so for me that experience like that exposure of to all of these different possibilities really opened a lot of doors for me uh so I'm grateful for that yeah there's something so nice about getting a chance to to play and have the tools and the resources to be like oh you have letterpress here okay I'll use your printmaker or like oh you have you know space for me to try oil painting okay that's great you know it, it's so cool when you get the opportunity to do that and I feel like that can really happen from art school I mean I'm maybe projecting because I related to that experience like I went in thinking like oh I'm gonna do photography and then was like wait I can try all these things and you actually are encouraging it okay cool <laughs> yeah exactly I agree <laughs> I'm also curious about your move from Iran to the United States. What motivated your decision to study abroad? And what was that transition like, um, both culturally and uh, creatively? Um, So I wanted to go to grad school, but also be able to have this new experience of what it is like to be living in a different place, a different culture, and also a completely different education system. Uh, because uh, you know, if I had decided to go to graduate school in Iran, I would I would be working with like similar groups of people with uh, in like a similar ac- like academic setting, and I really wanted that new experience. Um, and for me, the it was all like basically two months after I graduated, 
I started my semester <laughs> at Penn State, so I really didn't have like that time to like let everything like sink in. I I graduated, I started packing and basically getting ready to leave. Um, so just getting, I mean, I feel like every time you move to a new place, it's a whole lot of learning that you have to do. And I think that most difficult ones were the things that I didn't even expect to be to even exist or didn't didn't even think about like simple things you know when you go to the store like there's like 20 different types of bread that you've never tried and like which one do you buy like simple things where do I get a phone where do I just very simple things that um I think that was like the big adjustment because again two weeks later I had to start classes so I had to prepare set up a life and prepare for that so that was at the beginning a bit challenging challenging and then um, after I started graduate school, I was really lucky that I got to work with uh, really amazing professors that were super supportive. And so for me, the transition of like the educational system was like was totally fine because I had a supportive group around me uh, that I could easily ask questions of or uh, really reach out to whenever I needed them. And some of which I'm still very good friends with. Um, and yeah, so I think there were the things that I really didn't expect to be difficult and ended up being the most difficult. I was also wondering about your um, decision to move to Pennsylvania specifically, and had you applied to other programs or were you really, you know, looking to, to move there specifically? Um, no, not really. I didn't know anybody there and I did apply to a few programs and uh, for me honestly one of the most important factors that made me decide to go to Penn State was just like financially they had a really good uh, like I got I was lucky to get like full funding and a stipend and for somebody who's foreign and is not necessarily wealthy uh, and also you know because I'm foreign I couldn't really rely on student loans for me that was a really big factor uh, that you know, I was able to do it. Otherwise, yeah, there were other weird. options that maybe there were like bigger names, but it would it didn't make sense for me financially. Like I wasn't able to do it. Uh, I was really lucky because I it's really again like I really didn't know a lot of people who had done this like move uh, so that I could ask questions. So for me, I spent like hours like doing research, uh, figure out what schools have the programs that uh, I would be interested in and selecting a handful and applying to them. And luckily that one worked out in like all different aspects. Yeah, that's such an important consideration. And I feel like, you know, we talk about this in relation to um, the decision for students to go to undergrad, um, especially here in the States and the student loan crisis and how there's not a, as much conversation as maybe there should be around the financial implications of those decisions at that stage. And um, I think, you know, when you're studying abroad, especially as an international student or you're making a huge move, um, it's a much different conversation. And so I think, um, you know, whereas maybe it's not as much a part of the <laughs> determining factor for a lot of uh, students going to undergrad here, uh, maybe it should be. And um, 
yeah, I, I can absolutely see how that would, uh, you know, impact your decision on where to move and where to study and, um, and then not to have that burden coming out the other end. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I feel I've had friends who have had like six figure debts mm. and I, I can't even imagine, you know, how do you deal with that, especially having a career as an artist. It's not it's really challenging to pay off that debt. And there's a question of, you know, at what point do you draw the line that is this something that is worth investing in? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say there aren't other enormous challenges, I'm sure, with moving abroad or making a decision to study abroad. Um, but I am curious about your experience in uh, finishing graduate school. Did you, I mean, once you started studying at Penn State and, and you found this really supportive community, did you think that you might stay there and try and continue building a career? Did you think about moving to other cities? And I know eventually we'll get to your move in the Bay Area, um, but I am really interested in those first couple of years out of grad school. Um, you know, what did things look like for you? And what were some of your um, like goals or thinking at that time around what your next steps would be? Uh, yeah, that's such an interesting question. I think the first couple of years are out of grad school are probably the most challenging and I really wasn't like I didn't really get a lot of education on what to do after you graduate uh so it was mm -hmm. it I really had to like figure out okay I'm graduating in two months for like what do I do and uh, at that point because um I had built like a community there and uh like I knew of like some opportunities. Uh, I just decided to stay, even though it's a small town. It's a college town um, where I lived, and it's uh, there's not necessarily a big art scene, but I was able to like find some um, just part time, and then eventually leading leading to like full time work opportunities. So then I can right out of school support myself. So that really was, again, another reason for staying. I originally started applying for, like, uh, things out of grad school for, like, jobs, but then really none of them necessarily worked out. And again, like, uh, I think a big part of it was financially, and some of it was, like, personal. Like, my partner was studying in a, who was doing his PhD in, like, a, another city, like, three hours away. So another reason it made sense for me to kind of stay in the area for the time being. And so were you thinking that long-term you might um, continue to stay and try and build and grow a career there? Or were you thinking at that point that you might, you might make any sort of move? Yeah, I didn't think that I would stay there even as long as I did. Because one of the reasons was it's, uh, there weren't necessarily as many opportunities around there. Like I loved being able to, like there was just like one gallery downtown and it was, you know, it wasn't a very, like there wasn't really like an art scene. And also uh, like from the beginning, again, just a lot of it was like based on, uh, okay, this is temporary until I, you know, figure out. I was also waiting for my, a partner to graduate and uh, figure out, you know, what's next together. So mm -hmm. some of it was like a joint decision as well. But 
Um, another one was really the not having an art scene. Were you working on art all this time or were you trying to get your work out there or like what was um I guess your practice looking like in that time frame yeah so I was working on my art during the entire time at the beginning I was working like a couple of different like part-time day jobs and then uh uh, going to the studio and another really nice thing was again having access to the community uh, I was already at the university uh, so it was really great to be able to have access to the facilities to make the work which is it's it's amazing to especially now that I, don't, I no longer have access to that kind of facilities and I miss it so much uh, but it it did allow me to really focus on my work as well the kind of it was a really good setting in the way that I had a studio on campus and I was working on campus and I had access to all of these amazing equipment that allowed me to really like push uh, my work and make bigger work and uh, really get get to explore still work with uh, some faculty so uh, it was also a big like learning opportunity for me to be able to work in for instance, in like found in the foundry and working like casting things in metal, and uh, etc. So it was really good for me to just experiment and do more like play more with different uh, media and materials. And then yes, yeah, so, and then afterwards, I one of my part-time gigs became like a full-time gig, but still at the time I still had my studio there at the at the school and uh, just I mean it's it's definitely more challenging when you have like a nine-to-five job to make art but you you figure it out after a while okay if I go in like if your studio is right there it's it's not as bad because yeah I was able to like go in earlier work on my work and afterwards stay later in the weekends and that still allowed me to continue making the work yeah so that was I actually ended up living in State College from 2012 until the end of 2018. So I was there for for a while. Yeah, that helps when all of your, um, everything is in close proximity to each other, like your studio, workplace. Yeah, getting the work out there was, uh, I mean, a bit, I guess a bit more challenging in the way that there wasn't anything like super locally but it was there were a lot of like cities and towns nearby like driving distance a few hours away so I ended up submitting proposals to different places and like a few exhibitions that I got to like run to U-Haul and drive and install and so that was uh, good in that way even though there was an AD locally I guess there were things in the surrounding area that I was able to like show my work at and one of the things that I heard that came up actually um, in the episode that you were talking about people's when you had done a survey with people talking about smaller areas or smaller towns not having access to like a good place to show art or just in general an art community and I do agree with that I think we really need access to art opportunities in small towns because the cost of living is cheaper and you know for as an artist we don't necessarily make a lot of money so that makes sense to live in those smaller towns and somehow bringing opportunities there 
or even having opportunities to connect, I guess, with somehow with the bigger art world. That would be really amazing. Yeah, it feels like there are always these trade-offs. It's like if you live in a place with a higher concentration of artists and opportunities, um, you know, typically that revolves around a city center where you have higher cost of living. And, you know, we're both in the Bay Area, so we're really familiar with <laughs> cost of living in the San Francisco area. And so, you know, but, you know, then again, you could live in a more affordable place where maybe you have more access to space or you can rent a larger studio, but then there may not be as many local opportunities to show your work. And so um, I do think about that. What's the sort of happy balance or, you know, is there a way to have the best of both worlds? I don't know. Yeah, but I was thinking about what you said earlier and uh, just about access to um, different types of facilities for art making. And I do feel lucky as a painter that, you know, I, I feel like I need some kind of studio space, but I can more or less like take materials with me wherever I go, like work at different scales. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're making ceramics or metalwork, you need access to like kilns or printing presses or a foundry. I mean, those things you really do need to be connected to some kind of a studio that has that, you know, equipment for you to use. And so, um, yeah, I feel like depending on the discipline, you know, other artists have more considerations with where and how they make their work. Yeah, I agree. I was also interested, um, because I used to work in career development with a lot of international students in a higher education. And one of the bigger concerns on getting ready to graduate was whether or not they wanted to continue working in the United States and then what their visa situation would look like. So after graduating, they had this year on OPT where they you know, could find opportunities, figure things out. Um, but it was always, you know, that period of questioning, do they want to continue to try and find opportunity here, maybe move home or find uh, or move abroad elsewhere? And if so, then uh, finding a place that could potentially sponsor them or even just kind of dealing with the restrictions of uh, needing to find a job that was somehow directly related to their degree. And I'm curious if um, you had to deal with any of those things in grad in you know graduating from grad school. Did that impact the kinds of jobs you were seeking out or you know how you were thinking about what you know long term what you were wanting to do here? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of those things that if you're an artist, you know, after you graduate your life is challenging, but then if you're an artist, on a visa <laughs> that's a whole other yeah story. it's like a whole other layer yeah uh, so there is a lot of just like always you know there's just so many always be on top of applying for visas and the jobs that would support them it was a it's been a challenge this it was a very challenging process and uh, you no know, things are slow and they take time um but yeah you're you're right i was even like i wasn't even thinking about that that was another big factor of things to keep consider when looking for jobs after graduating because of the visa situation. Hmm. So that was part of the criteria for you then in um, seeking work was looking for places that were familiar with that or that could support that process. Uh, yeah, some of the, yeah, that would be a part of the process, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good to hear. And I know, you know, different schools um, have, 
uh, you know, different levels of support, especially if they're having, if they have a lot of international students that come through, you know, they may have a kind of robust support system that can help facilitate that. Uh, whereas other schools might be really unfamiliar with that process. Um, the same thing on the employer end. Um, so I was curious because I know that, you know, some places, again, they're, they're familiar with the process. They can support international students or workers and then others are you know might be the first time they're going through that and so i know students have had to kind of help coach their employers uh through that in some cases but um yeah thanks for for sharing that i i am interested to know um when and why and how did you make this cross-country move from the east coast to the west coast um i mean not in relation to this giant move you made abroad, but um, just moving from coast to coast within one country can be a huge transition. And so I'm curious to hear more about that. And, um, you know, at what point did you move out to the Bay Area? Uh, yeah, so we moved to the Bay Area at the beginning of 2019. So just one year before COVID. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. And the reason was my uh, partners just, Moved here. Well, he moved here because of his job. Uh, and you know, I'm you not know, living in Pennsylvania. I knew it's not. It was like a temporary place to live. So I was like, expecting to move somewhere. And at the time, it just made sense to, like, for uh, the job that he got to make sense uh, to move the Bay Area. And um, I didn't really know anyone there. Anyone here? When I moved here, I didn't really expect this whole move to a new place to be kind of like pressing the reset button uh, in your career because you don't really, you don't know anybody, you don't know yeah. where to, you don't know where things are, you don't know how things work. Basically, you don't even know where to uh, find a studio and then nobody wants to necessarily show work by a new person. Uh, I mean, there are like in the Bay Area, I found that there are few open call opportunities. And then just in general, it was really challenging to find spaces because Bay Area is really expensive. So studio rent is not cheap. And then also I live kind of outside of San Francisco. I live in South Bay. So I'm uh, like 40 minutes away from the city. Uh, which is like close enough to come visit, but also like 40 minutes is no traffic, which is never, <laughs> it could be like two hours, <laughs> two yeah. hours sometimes. Um, and I, um, so yeah, I was really struggling at the beginning to try just to try to learn how things worked. And the first thing that I did after a few months of search of, and like reaching out to places and where I live, um, near me, I, I was like reaching out to places, the few places that had studio spaces available. They would say, oh, yeah, this application is going to open in like four years. Or, oh, we have a late waiting list of like so many people. You're probably going to be like a few years. Uh, finally, I was able to join a space in the city, uh, Root Division, which is such an amazing nonprofit nonprofit art organization. And the reason that I loved them so much was because they had not only like studio spaces that were affordable, but also had access to a great art community. Um, and that was really great to be able to just talk to people and meet people. It's very challenging to navigate a new space without anyone's help. I think we all 
need need help from other artists and other people and and I really believe in uh building a community so that was kind of my move to the bay area yeah yeah I I love Rue Division I've known a couple of friends that have had studios there and had similar things to say um but I can really relate to that story too. I moved out to the Bay Area at the end of 2016. Um, so it's been about five years now, but it really did feel like starting over in a lot of ways. And I don't think I had anticipated how challenging that would be, just trying to make new connections and kind of rebuild community. Um, and I had spent the previous eight years in Baltimore where Amanda and I went to school where um, you know, I think having that foundation of like graduating from uh, a school within a place or a city kind of gives you a built-in community. So even as you're branching out and meeting new people or finding new opportunities, it I always felt very connected to Baltimore as a city. And it took me a long time to feel like any sort of real connection to San Francisco um, because it, it was just... Uh, yeah, everything was new. And like you're saying, the challenge of like finding opportunity, finding community, meeting people, trying to figure out like where, where your work fits and just trying to make ends meet. <laughs> so, I mean, all of it was really an adjustment. Um, and it's really only now within the last like couple of years that I'm starting to feel a little bit more settled, but it, it really did take um, like years, I would say, to feel, feel any sort of stability. So... Um, yeah, yeah, well I can said. <laughs> relate to that move. So I'm, I, I guess, related to that. Um, how how were you starting to find opportunities, or you know, what other things were starting to happen, in addition to this uh, studio space and community at Root Division, which really just finding a place to make your work is huge. I feel like that's uh, such an important way to like center yourself, and you know, you can build from there, but. Yeah, I, I felt lucky to find a studio in Oakland pretty quickly, um, even though I was living in San Francisco. So just having a place to make work really gave me a lot, you know, to keep busy with. But um, yeah, what were some of the other things that were that you were starting to seek out or were happening for you? Um, yeah, so when I uh, found that the studio space, uh, another thing that actually was a big challenge for me was finding a makerspace because a lot of my work uh, I use a lot of digital fabrication technologies like laser cutters in my work and um, and then a lot of the, the work that I was working on and I still the work that I'm working on right now kind of requires all of those technologies so the next step for me was just finding a makerspace and uh, being able to have a place to do some of the process of the making. Um, so that was a, another step that I had to figure out. And then everything was kind of in a different place. My makerspace was in a different town. And then my studio was in a different uh, like place. And I had to figure out how do I, how do I make this work? Because the, because of the like commute, I would plan like two or three full days in the studio that I leave in the morning and like come back in the evening because it's not easy to like do this and then come back and drive an hour to the makerspace and drive an hour back. So I had to really tr completely rearrange my schedule. And just tr tr also another thing was 
before moving here, I was work uh, working on making like larger sculptural work, and then all of a sudden, like losing access to the facilities. Even the new maker space had like a couple of small laser cutters, nothing like the big machines that I was used to, or any basically any other facility that I was used to. So that was a really big change to figure out, okay, how do I make this work? Um, also, another thing is just I was sharing a studio space with another person, so I had also just less space to make. And uh, basically everything that I had, I had to bring put in a storage unit because it wasn't going to fit in my studio, all the my past work. And um, then again, like just trying figuring out how do I make this whole thing sustainable. And I started to think about making smaller work. And then when it comes to like installation, thinking about creating more modular work, I guess in a way things that could come apart and be packed. And um, it's been a learning experience trying to make work that is really sustainable with this the place that i live in right now um so that's been a challenge and a big learning experience for me and um the first thing i wanted to do and for opportunities i just started naturally just looking for like open calls for instance to see okay what are the galleries that accept work um because it's you can't just reach out to people that don't know you and say, hey, show my work, please. So that's how I started. And um, and what I've come to realize is that it's such a slow process to kind of become a part of an art community. It's just going to take, as you said, like years to feel like you actually like know people and know everything and other people know you. So I've uh, come yeah. to realize that it's, just going to be slow and I'm um and especially after COVID happened right like at the beginning of uh 2020 I was really excited that there were like I had a couple of like great opportunities which all got canceled for COVID and then um and then I really didn't have any way to meet new people for like almost two years so I feel like that didn't really <laughs> didn't really help but I tried to find ways to like virtually stay connected with other people. Um, so one of my friends and I, one of my friends from graduate school, who, when I moved here, she moved to Houston. We ended up starting making this online critique group called Crit Society. Oh, wow. Like for a way to oh, like to bring people in, have a place to just have a conversation and like get honest feedback from peers. Um, so that was really helpful just as a way to keep the conversation going during COVID, but also like a good place to talk to other artists and see what other people are doing in their work. And then right now I'm really focusing on meeting other artists in the Bay Area and see how, where they're showing their work, how they're, how are they going, how are they doing this art thing? They're making it work. <laughs> And uh, it's been, I think the best part has been learning what other people do and making like connections and friendships like that. And I'm just going to slowly <laughs> work on it. And, and I've been, yeah, just trying to find ways to 
get more opportunities, like paid opportunities. Yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really is such a slow process, that community building. But I love hearing about, um, I mean, some of the most creative solutions come about through those real challenges of like distance, not being able to connect in person. And I love that you use that to start this critique group. And um, is that something that's still ongoing? Do you think you'll continue that post pandemic? Or was that just a temporary solution to not being able to meet in person? Actually, it started before COVID because because of the feel like the oh, need of just not having a community in new and in a new place, but then really mm-hmm. took off during COVID because we just really mm-hmm. really didn't have any way to connect with other people, and it is ongoing right now. It's on pause uh, because my friend is on maternity leave, but we are hoping to come back and uh, kind of do this bi-weekly meeting. It's just a very casual way to. So for us, it's been great to meet, meet new artists and just build new friendships and connections. Yeah. Are these artists mostly based in the Bay Area or Houston, or are they all spread out? And how are they finding the critique group? Uh, so we started by just reaching out to our friends, which uh, I think the first, the first studio visit that we did was with uh, is an artist from Root Division. And then my friend also some friends that she had uh, in Houston and then people that we've been to, we had went to school with. But then afterwards, we started to, started to get more introduced to more people through those like initial conversations. And um, we even had like some people reach out to us that, hey, I'm interested in like participating in this. And uh, so it started to grow after we reached out to our initial circle well feel free to let us know when it's back and maybe we'll pop in because it sounds really fun oh thank you yeah that would be amazing yeah I was gonna say I definitely remember one of the first things I noticed after graduating and so many of my like closest art friends moved to other parts of the country and I was just like oh wow it really it's a lot harder when I'm the only one staring at my work and like, I could really use some perspective and I definitely still will like send something to a friend. I'll be like, does this look weird? Please tell me what it, what does it need? I, I can't think. But finding a way to stay connected and create a crit group, but also a way that you can meet new people through it and not just, you know, be the, the few friends that you had. I love it. Yeah, that's really valuable. I feel like I get to learn a lot about my work through what other people see, just through hearing what they think and what they see and what they recommend. I think that's a big part, especially if it's work in progress. That That's when, you know, you can really make changes and decisions based on the feedback that you get. So I really value feedback and critique. Yeah. Have you noticed anything about um, hosting virtual critiques or studio visits about what works well? Um, Because I'll admit that's a format I haven't really experimented with a lot, but I'm interested in. And I always wonder what's the best way to present your work in that format, Um, you know, especially if like the material, the surface, all these things you can't really get through 
a screen. And so our artist, I guess I have like very practical questions about it. <laughs> Are you like in the studio with them and they're pointing to the work? Are they screen sharing existing work? Like, could you describe what a successful virtual critique or studio visit looks like? <laughs> oh yeah, sure. So we actually really left it to the artist. We kind of designed like a general guideline of this is how long maybe your presentation should be and this is how much time we want to at least leave for feedback but there um, were other things that we let the artists decide like if they wanted to if they felt more comfortable with the screen share or if they wanted to basically bring a work to the camera or walk around the studio and give a tour and what they felt best represented their work and I know it's really hard to see art in in just zoom or on a screen it's not the same as walking up to a piece or if it's three-dimensional walking around it it's very different but i think it was just basically the only way that we had <laughs> available but and another issue is that or not necessarily an issue but another thing that has come up uh, is that the idea of like accessibility um and the people that you can reach in a virtual setting like during COVID for instance I was able to see go to artist talks in New York for instance that otherwise I would have never you know seen and yes it's not the same experience uh, to like see a, like a virtual tour or like a, even like a Instagram live walkthrough of a gallery it's definitely not the same as going to an in-person thing but even like having the option makes it First of all, accessible for people who cannot, for and for whatever reason, be physically there, but also people who live far away. So there are some difficult things about it, but there are definitely some positive things that maybe we can learn by not making things virtual, but add, by adding virtual programming to the existing in-person things for the future. Yeah, I can't remember where... I heard it, whether I like heard it on a podcast or read it somewhere, but uh, I feel like through the, or not, I feel like what was said was through the pandemic, there were so many accessibility problems that had been existing for a really long time that were not prioritized. And then when it became everyone's issues, they became prioritized and it was like, oh, all of a sudden we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Things we've been saying no to. Now we can say yes to. And it's like, all right, how can we keep doing these things? How can we keep making these opportunities more accessible? Because I had very similar experiences like early on in the pandemic. There were all these uh, like virtual music festivals happening. And I'm like, oh, I would not have been able to get to see them live. But now I get to watch them on my screen and I'm in my pajamas and I feel great about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You're right. Yeah, I definitely hope that's something that sticks around after the pandemic, um, because I agree that's been one of the best things is getting to tune into like artist talks or lectures on the other side of the country. And I love that there are so many of those still happening. And so hopefully, even once more and more things start returning to in person, there will be some like virtual or hybrid component. Actually, Amanda and I uh, gave like a hybrid virtual talk on or we were in a panel discussion last year where all of the panelists were on zoom like on a screen uh, but being broadcast in an auditorium of students in person um, 
So even just being able to like bring in speakers without having to fly them in somewhere <laughs> feels more accessible. Yeah, and and we just did a like a virtual slash IRL job fair kind of thing at a school where they had part of it in person where students could go, but then they could also access different companies or people to talk to online. And Nicole and I were like, we just have our little table and we're just here and anyone that wants to pop in can and we can still be bi-coastal. Yeah, I was like, is this the metaverse? We were in this, uh, the screen looked like a video game version of like an in-person fair or trade show so you could see pictures of all these little tables with people's avatars hovering over them and the students could like pop in and out and they could meet with different recruiters or employers and we were just kind of there on behalf of the podcast but yeah it was so different from anything we've ever done so Mm -hmm. that's so interesting (laughs) yeah but it was like oh we we get to be virtually tuning into a school in florida when we're in baltimore and California. I mean, wild. That's that's really great. We need more of that in the future, mm-hmm. or at least co- somehow a hybrid version of in-person and online. Yeah. Um, you had talked about this a little bit before, but thinking about uh, scaling your work and thinking about the sustainability of your work, and I've, I'm selfishly asking this question because I'm kind of encountering some similar things in my work where I'm thinking like, okay, I have a lot of stuff that I have to store now. And it wasn't an issue in the beginning, but it's becoming an issue. And I imagine as the decades progress, it will continue to become an issue. <laughs> how are you thinking about the the lifetime of your work and how you'll be, I guess, sustaining all of these pieces? Because you, you really have pieces of such a variety of scales, like, you know, bigger than humans to very small to pieces that are, you know, uh, could probably be stored away pretty easily. And other ones that I don't even know how you would how you would travel that across the country, much less like store it or or anything. Yeah, that's been a a serious issue, Um, especially with bigger work when you know, for like even being able to take it out to, I couldn't even, basically, I can't even take the bigger work that I have and fit it in my studio uh, or, like, let alone my car. So things, I decided to stop making things that I can't fit in my car anymore <laughs> um, at this point. And I'm really looking for, like, ways to get involved into, like, public art. So that way I can make big things and have it out there and, it could live out there for a long time and I don't have to like think about storing it. I, yeah, that's something I'm really trying to explore and get into. But for now, even though making the small things is not, it wasn't necessarily like my go-to, but I decided that's literally the only way that I can continue working because it's, it is expensive to make big work it is harder to show big work like the big work that i've brought with me from the east coast i haven't been able to show any of them in the bay area there's few very few spaces that even show installation work and so it's very challenging and i feel like if they keep sitting there for another few years they start to 
basically be, I don't know, get like destroyed eventually with dust and uh, everything. Um, and it's also much harder to like really make boxes for giant work. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about making things like for instance, some of my two dimensional work like mixed video work that I was doing. Uh, some of them have like giant boxes that don't even fit in my car. So I started uh, kind of making into things into sections. So I have like works that are in like three panels or four panels and they come together to make up a bigger piece and like working also in like diptychs and, diptychs and triptychs and that kind of way as a way of uh, breaking things out that physically I can make it with the facilities that I have access to. I can like more realistically store it and uh, potentially like ship it, move it because I just, I'm not in a place uh, that I can think about making big work. And it's a challenge, like for some of the installations I kind of moved on to making more. I recently started working more with like fabric and like uh, as something that, you know, a material that I'm really interested in it because it's like always been associated with like femininity and like female work, but also the fact that you can just basically fold it and store it and then you open it up again and it's good to go, good to go pretty much. Um, so that's been like one of the things that I've recently been starting working with and um, yeah, but I really don't have any like solutions other than like dreading the days that I'm going to have to go to my storage unit, take things out and throw them away because they've been sitting there for too long. <laughs> I definitely have been building a, a like pile of boxes in the attic and we've only been in this house for a year now, but I definitely, there's a section that I'm like, this is the work that I don't know where to put and I don't have a place for it. But this space is open, so I'm just going to put it up here and we'll deal with that at a later time. <laughs> but I'm very aware of like, oh, there's all this. I bet it's probably going to be covered in spiders at some point. It's fine. I'll figure it out. <laughs> it's just some, some of the challenges of the artist life. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like sometimes these, yeah. um, these different constraints can kind of lead you to come up with, with different types of art making where you're like, oh, okay. I really was doing this. Now I can't do that anymore. But now I'm working with this material, which I wasn't even thinking about before. And I'm really excited to explore this. And it happens to be like easier to work with and, you know, more affordable in in terms of storage and, and materials or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I feel like and that's what happened to a lot of people during COVID too, with just losing access to studio and equipment was the question of, okay, what, well, what can I do now that I'm stuck at home? And that, like, one of the things that I really started working on when I was at home was video, because I thought, I mean, as I was working on something that I thought, oh, well, maybe having some type of time-based media would be appropriate, but also just, I love how democratic it is that you can like basically ship it for free by uploading it on like Dropbox or Google Drive and have like have it shown in anywhere in the world or um, it just doesn't take any like physical space to store. Um, so there, are, as you said, yeah, sometimes with like constraints 
come new experimentation and sometimes you end up doing things that you don't expect but then but you enjoy and think you want to explore more yeah this is such an interesting subject the idea of like art storage and longevity and it's not something we've talked about that often on the podcast but it is such a big consideration especially if you're making like physical objects and it's almost like you can go heavily in one direction and like scale up the work even further and make really permanent public art pieces like you were saying so that your work has a permanent place to live or you know on the opposite direction maybe you're doing like media video based work that is much more fluid or doesn't rely on storage or a location but you know for all of that work in between it is something that we all have to think about and figure out and it's not just artists either um i mean like you know collectors museums all have to think about you know how to store their work uh and it's such a huge industry that's sort of like underneath what we see in the art world but do either of you listen to the Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. There's this really interesting episode about museum storage. And I think it's called something like Dragon Psychology. But he uses um, the Met in New York, uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, as an example. Um, But there's a crazy statistic. It's like something like only only like two to four percent of the Met's collection is currently on view at any given time. And the other 98, 95% is in storage. Wow, that is, that's crazy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's so wild. Well, and I guess all these things you're talking about um, are really consideration that we have like special art storage units, but Sorry, hang on. This is an abrupt subject change, but as someone who has been making art in all of these different ways, how do you kind of creatively shift modes between different methods of art making? And I guess, how do you kind of break down your, I mean, it's sort of a two-part question, um, that and like, how do you kind of break down your studio time? So the way that since I started this like new way of making and maybe like 2012 2013 this uh, idea of like more work that's more conceptually driven and so always concept concept comes first and then there's it actually involves a lot of research to figure out what material that I or what media I can use for the project but also then has a very very big learning curve um for me to learn how to use this whole new uh basically process of whether it's slip casting in ceramics or whether it's making something out of metal or whether recently i started working with like fabric and working on these wearable sculptures and I have like zero experience in each of these fields that I go into so for me it's a very long process it's not so much of the shifting between the two like the the mindset is like the most challenging part is just I often do things that the most of the time do things that I don't know how to do 
Um, so I have to do a lot of research and figure out how to do what I want to do. And some of the stuff there's help for, like you can either reach out to somebody or watch videos and tutorials. And there are other things that I have no idea. And I really, there's like these like weird things that maybe not nobody, at least nobody that I know of has done. And I just end up like spending a couple of months like playing with the material and trying to figure out how to translate those thoughts into these pieces or objects. So it's a lot of playing and experimentation. I love how going back to the idea of like playing, it's really exciting, but it's also frustrating <laughs> because you feel like, why is it not doing what I want it to do? Um, but it's also one of the things that just really keeps me going of like the excitement of, oh, this is new, let's see what it can do. Uh, but it's also one of the things that's really slowing me down sometimes. I feel like I spend way too much time on like each piece. And then I ask myself, is this sustainable long-term? I'm trying to kind of find a balance. And I already forgot the second part of your questions. Oh, yeah. No, that's okay. Uh, I have... It's rude of me to stack the questions, especially when they're unrelated. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, here, think two completely different things and line them up beautifully for me. Thanks. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. Um, no, I wanted to ask, what does either a typical day or a week, and maybe your studio experience is not typical or consistent, but I guess what does, if there is a typical day or week in the studio, what does that kind of look like for how you break down your time and kind of the the tasks and uh, different ways in which you uh, approach your, your art as job? So for, for me, the typical day in the studio is I get it really depends on like where I am at. So like when I was I had a studio in San Francisco that was very different, and then recently I did a four month uh, long residency in Palo Alto in a place that was really close to me. So for me that was really different, and that made a huge change in how I approached my day just because it was so accessible and nearby, and I could just go anytime. And uh, so then I had a more relaxed schedule in that sense that I didn't really need to like plan a whole day I could just go for a meeting come back go back whatever like do be very flexible with that but my typical day is first thing I like look at my schedule in the morning and then a lot of times what I do is that I have to spend a lot of time just because I'm very slow at like writing. It just does not come naturally to me. And every time I'm working on an application, which is like all the time, I end up uh, spending a long time on writing. So for me, like I, if I have like any yeah writing Relatable. work, it's uh, <laughs> it's a struggle. But uh, so my studio time is really not always just making. I love the graphics that you shared uh, recently about like how much studio time do you actually like make art and like all of the other emails all the like other items like emails and communication um i try but i do try to kind of ahead of time block off different parts of my day for different tasks so uh really it it doesn't look the same every day but i try to kind of decide what it's going to be for the next day or the next week at least to see okay 
you have to work on this and this and this and this and this, like all the items. And I have a very sophisticated way of putting everything on Google Calendar, basically. <laughs> all like, my to-do list is on my Google Calendar. Um, so yeah, that's how I handle my days. It's, I don't really have like this specific time for a studio or email or that. It's just based on the day and what the needs of the day are. But I do try to just mark it, like block it off that I know these are the things that are roughly going to do within those times. Yeah, that's funny. I'm the same way with the Google Calendar. Like I use that to plan out everything and will use the tasks just to remind myself of like what I have to do. So if you look at it, it looks as if I have like a hundred unfinished tasks, but it's just because I'm using those as like visual reminders of like what I did or had to do. But I feel like Amanda and I are the opposite because you're like like paper notebook or sketchbook all yes. the way. Oh yeah, my plan is like everything somewhere. digital. <laughs> Yeah. See, I just really love that. Oh, that's great. It's chaos, but it's a lot of... Yeah, we all have our own organizational (laughs) methods. Yeah, for me, for some reason, I tried, like, all of these different things from, like, paper to doing spreadsheets and all of that and just separate to-do lists. But I've just, for for me, come to realize that if I have it all in like one place in the calendars, I can open the app in the morning and just see everything as um, Nicole said, like visually, like visually, like all of these things in different colors and categories. And uh, it's been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good to hear about this too. And what, just what the day to day looks like. Um, Cause we just did that whole episode about expectations versus reality and, you know, time management (laughs) what it actually looks like versus like what we imagine it to look like so it's good to hear that confirmed from other artists (laughs) yeah and I love seeing the different methods of ways that we keep our studios organized because everyone is different and you know for me paper is best and for y'all keeping it organized in the calendar is best and as someone who works with a calendar person I I do really appreciate it Because I'm always like, oh, Nicole has it all figured out. It's in my phone already. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the Google Calendar illusion. (laughs) I'm always just like, wow, it's amazing. It told me when to be there and where. (laughs) So sophisticated. (laughs) I was just going to ask uh, Kiana if there's anything that we haven't touched on or talked about yet that you would want to make sure to share. I can't think of any right now but I feel like we talked about a lot of things yeah um is there anything as a listener do you have any feedback for us on things that you would want to hear on the podcast or things that you while listening are like oh I I wish I would you know I could share this with listeners or or whatever (laughs) yeah let's put you on the spot (laughs) Yeah, give yeah. us your podcast <laughs> feedback and tips and tricks. <laughs> I I love that you bring people from like very different uh, professional backgrounds, and to hear honestly how everybody handles their beyond the studio situation, because that's something that we don't really at least both in my undergrad and in graduate school I got really no information about that. So it's seeing one of the best ways to 
learn about the possibilities is learning from other artists. So I do really appreciate it. Um, I yeah, I I think I learned about your podcast this just past year. Uh, so. So I'm glad that I did, uh, and I really enjoy it. I have I spend a lot of time um, doing very labor intensive work for some reason, <laughs> just like stitching something to figure out how to. Anyways, <laughs> some crazy things uh, that nobody should do, but uh, so that I end up listening to a lot of audiobooks and like art podcasts, and so I, I appreciate being able to learn how other artists handle their careers um and then what was the second part of your question yeah I think that was it um but thank you for that that's really good to hear and um this has been such a treat for us too uh because something that Amanda and I talk about is just that you know we're we're so grateful that we get to have these really in-depth conversations with other artists but uh, it can sometimes feel a little bit one-sided in that like we get to have these really amazing connections with the people we bring on the podcast and then you know we get to share them but we don't always get that feedback loop or get to connect really directly with the artists that are listening and so we're always trying to think of more ways to build it into more of a community and um, I hope that we can do more uh, more events and more things that start to, you know, gather people together. And so it's been really great to connect with you in that way and to just get to have you on the podcast and really get to, uh, to learn more and share more of your journey. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, having me over at the podcast and then the wonderful questions and conversation. Yeah. Do you have any um, other like go to art podcasts or audiobooks kind of on the topic of art and professional development that you also like to listen to um, that we could recommend? I mean, I've listened to a lot of podcasts about arts, but I haven't found any at least that talk about professional development. But for books, uh, I mean, there's the classic artwork book that I think every artist should have mm-hmm. uh, by Heather Dorothy Bandari. That that was amazing. And then mm-hmm. uh, I recently started reading this book that, let me tell you the full title because I mess it up every time. It's uh, It is The Artist's Guide to Grand Writing. And I kind of recently started to get into that as Oh, another way to fund like bigger, more ambitious projects. And I'm not very good at it. So I was searching for ways for books to read and get better at uh, writing grants. And this one came up and I really enjoyed it so far. And it's been very helpful. It comes from the perspective of an artist and really walking you through the process of like, even the psychological things that happens to you when you're trying to write. It's been great. I highly recommend it. It's by, I think, Gigi Rosenberg. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. I've got that book on my shelf, but I I haven't read the whole thing, so... I'll have to get it on my Yeah, show. actually, that reminds me. Um, I was going to say when you were talking about public art, um, there's there's a great book about that, too. The Oh, gosh, I can't see the title from here, so I might be getting this wrong. But I think it's The Artist's Guide to Public Art oh. Projects by Lynn Bassa. Um, and that one's really great, too, for public art proposals. Um, also written from the perspective of an artist. 
But San Francisco has such a great public, like robust public art program and the San Francisco um, airport. And so I've actually been tuning in lately to some of the workshops and talks that the um, SFAC has been putting on about public art, and they do a lot of great virtual events. Um, I forgot to share that earlier, but I don't know if you've um, been to any of those, Kiana, but uh, since we have a shared interest in public art, um, I've been learning a lot through those resources. Oh, that's great. I really, I I checked out one day, they had a couple of sessions that they brought in guests. Is that the same thing? Maybe, yeah. The one I um, heard was with, uh, they had like two or three artists that were talking about their public art practices. And... Yeah, yeah, that was really helpful. I still, I'm not very familiar with uh, how the local like, artists or public art scene is run. But that's something that I really need to learn and study more about and trying to figure out the kind of the entry point into it because I've only done some um smaller like short-term public art installations but nothing with like a big budget or you know nothing temporary like permanent so that's something that i i'm really looking into right now so thanks for mentioning that yeah oh yeah it's such a fascinating world um but it sounds, I mean, just based on these other artists' experiences that, you know, in the workshop, um, it sounded like that was the entry point for a lot is like, you know, it starts with, I think in the one case, uh, this artist, um, this guy was doing a lot of like private commissions. Um, and then in another case, like they were doing a lot of uh, temporary or like, you know, community-based events or work and like those things, you know, eventually like would lead into bigger projects. So it sounds like, sounds like you're on the right track. <laughs> I'm expecting to be a slow and long process, but yeah, like everything, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. I wrote one of the things that uh, I wrote earlier as a note to myself in our conversation was just some things happen slow and it's like such an annoying lesson to learn, but it also is kind of, it's very humbling and, and sort of has some piece to it of like, well, I can't create time. I just have to keep going with it. And with that time comes the, you know, honing your craft and your skill. And, and there was this, uh, I'm going to misquote it, but there was this quote from Ira Glass that uh, I think I heard on This American Life forever ago or, or something related to it. Uh, and it was something along the lines of like, your taste is going to far exceed your skill level for a long time. And it's going to be an extremely frustrating process while you're in that. But there will be a point if you keep showing up where your skill level and your your knowledge and your experience like matches the vision in your head and you're you're actually able to execute it the way you intend to. And I'm still holding out for that moment. But time does... I don't know, give me a little more peace with my practice. Yeah, that's that's really well said. And I agree, it's something also another thing you don't learn in art school is that you know the fact that the art career is just very different from all the other career paths and it's going to be something that you really built mm-hmm. throughout many, many years. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, and before we 
wrap it up, where can listeners find your work? Where can they find you online? Uh, and if you have anything to promote? Uh, yeah. Uh, so online, I have a website, kianahonarman.com, my first name, last name, and the same for Instagram. That's where I just post about like some of the work that I'm working on. And then right now I have a temporary public installation at this called it. It's called a hopscotch reimagined. So they've had like a few artists design hopscotch at the discovery museum in uh, Sausalito and the Bay Area discovery museum. Uh, so that's just like a fun project and I love the idea of making something just for kids to interact with. Um, and then in the South Bay, I have a work in a group exhibition in a new moon, new museum, Los Gatos. Uh, and then upcoming shows, I'll have a video in a gallery, woman made gallery in Chicago. It's going to open in a couple of weeks. And then another Bay Area, I'll have work in a group show in the drawing room in San Francisco. That's also going to open in a couple of weeks. Man, lots going on. Lots going on. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you again uh, yeah, for joining you. us on the podcast. And yeah, we're excited to share. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. Thank you.